you pray with me? Lord, we sing um, just this last few moments going from the scene of the manger to eternity where yours is the glory forever. Amen. And at times, Father, it seems as though we're kind of um, stuck between the two scenes and, um, and we live in a world that um, with a with a lot of brokenness around us, but there's also an incredible hope for the future. And, um, and Lord, um, your word helps us navigate through the twists and turns of life and the, the daily living. And, uh, and our prayer is, again, that you would equip us this morning. As we open your word, would you open our hearts? Uh, would you teach us um, the things that we need to understand and that we need to hear from you? So speak to our hearts, fear the living God. Uh, we open ourselves to you, all for the glory of your name. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Welcome you here again. Um, welcome those who are joining us online. And um, I'm glad you're joining us. Glad you're here this morning. My name is Floyd. If you're new here, um, my name is Floyd, and I do the majority of the preaching and teaching here at Cornerstone. We are, we've worked our way all the way through 1 Samuel. We are getting our way into 2 Samuel. Um, 1 Samuel, of course, as you know, is the story of the prophet Samuel and King Saul, um, bad king, but anointed by God. And then, of course, 1 Samuel ends with King Saul dying. And, and then we move into 2 Samuel and the first several chapters, the first section of 2 Samuel is the struggle for power in a vacuum of power, where Saul's power and control is suddenly off the stage, and now there's a struggle for power because there's a vacuum there. We looked at 2 Samuel chapter 2 yesterday, or last week, where, um, where there's, there's the, 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 um, the tribe of Judah has anointed David as their king, but then the rest of Israel under the influence of Abner, the general, uh, who was, by the way, a cousin of Saul's, Abner anointed Ishbosheth, um, and we looked at that last week as literally translated man of shame. Ishbosheth was the king over the rest of the tribes of Israel, so the nation of Israel is divided between all of these tribes that are not Judah and Judah. Judah has David as, his, as their king, and the rest of the tribes have Ishbosheth as their king. And it's not the way God intended, and we're going to see that in a few moments. God had intended that David would be king over all of Israel, but there's struggle to make it happen. Last week we looked at, and this is sort of foundational to these texts this Sunday and the next Sunday that Ishbosheth is the man of shame is sort of a picture or representation of what happens when we are on the throne, when we are our own kings, when we serve ourselves. And David is the picture and the type of Christ as king. But we come into sort of an interesting twist of the story. So Abner, this cousin of Saul who has established Ishbosheth as king, now seems to have had a change of heart. And he goes from being the one primary roadblock for David to be the king over all of Israel to seemingly being the agent of change to make it happen. 
And if you've ever had somebody in your life that was a difficult relationship and a difficult personality, and I know we've all, we all have, there are times when you wonder if they will ever change. And you wonder, is this person ever going to have a change of heart? Will they ever actually treat people different? Will they ever treat me different? Will they ever stop repeating the cycles of behavior that are so destructive? It may be an addictive behavior. It might be an abusive behavior. You might just have a personality conflict. Maybe they're just a jerk. I don't know. Um, but there's, this, there's always this question of, will they ever change? And if you go for years, especially if it's a family member, and it just doesn't seem to change, and it's just year after year, the same destructive behaviors, you start to believe that change is impossible, and that a tiger stripe is never going to lose his stripes, right? That's the old adage. Tiger still has his stripes. And that even when that person says, well, I've had a change of heart, cynicism sets in after a while. And that's really the struggle with Abner. Is, is Abner actually having a change of heart or not? Does he really actually change? Or is he just going through the motions? Is this sort of a resigned position of, well, my plan didn't work out, so we'll go the other direction? Is it deceptive? As we see at the end of the passage, Joab, David's general, seems to think. Or is it a genuine change of heart? And I started out the week thinking that he's probably still kind of a snake in the weeds and that you can't trust him because he's Abner after all. And I finished the week going into this morning saying, I think I'm prepared to argue that he had a change of heart. So maybe you'll agree with me, maybe you won't. Let's get into the text. 1 Samuel chapter 3 Verses 1 through 5 are sort of a summary, and I'm not going to read them, but basically it summarizes what we're about to read, that there's a long war between the house of David, the house of Saul, which would have been Abner and Ishbosheth, and that David had sons, and it names all of his sons and their mothers, and, um, and it's essentially saying that David is getting stronger while Saul is getting weaker. We break in in verse 6. It says, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David. Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ai. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. God do so to Abner and more also if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. This is a fascinating twist in the story, isn't it? 
You see the story unfolding. Saul had this concubine, and we don't know, the narrator doesn't tell us whether Ishbosheth was actually accurate in his accusation of Abner or if he was giving him a false accusation, but he's accusing Abner of sleeping with his, with his father's concubine. And he's saying this isn't appropriate. And Abner is deeply offended by the accusation. Now, again, I kind of want the narrator or the storyteller to let us know, was he or wasn't he? But it seems to not even be important to the story. The story is that there's a conflict between Ishbosheth and Abner, and that Abner is deeply offended. It's a little bit hard for us to understand in an American culture because we're not necessarily considered to be a culture of shame and honor. Now, shame and honor are very important in our culture. But there are cultures that are, that are actually identified, and this would have been one of them, where everything was, was dependent and rested on things like shame and honor. And honor was what you would drive for all the time, and shame was what you avoided at all costs. And so what Ishbosheth is doing, ironically, the man of shame, is he's shaming Abner, over this issue of his father's concubine, and Abner is not having it. He's not going to accept the shaming that's coming. And so Abner says, you know what? I have been loyal. I've helped you out. I've, I've protected you from David. But he says, this is, this is done. I am done doing this. And he says, in fact... He even, like, he almost pronounces a curse on himself if he doesn't go through with accomplishing what he says, and this is in his words, what God has sworn to David, to him. And it's like that moment where Abner realizes this is something that God has been setting in place, and he has sworn this to David. And he's like, I'm done fighting it, and I'm going to make it happen. And it says, in the end of that section, verse 11, Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. Ishbosheth is not as strong as his title would indicate. Just because he's king over all the tribes of Israel except Judah does not mean he's a strong man. He's actually a deeply insecure man. And again, to draw on the analogy of the self-made king, when we are our own kings and we are serving our own selves and our own appetites and our own set of morals, we are, we are perpetually insecure and full of fear. It just goes with it. We're not capable of leading our own lives and being our own kings. Let's keep reading. Pick it up in verse 12. And it says, And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, to whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And he said, Good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michael, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Baharim. 
Then Abner said to him, go return, and he returned. Story just gets weirder, doesn't it? So Abner's had this apparent change of heart, and he sends to David, and he says, you know what, the land's really yours. He said, let's make a covenant. And David says, I'm on board with that, but you know what, I want my first wife back. Because if you remember, when David was running for his life, and he had to leave in, under the sort of the cover of darkness, Michael sort of stands as a, as a um, protection between her father and him, but eventually Saul then gives her to another man in marriage. And David's saying, I, I'd like to have, was really his first love, back. I'd love to have my first wife back. Well, there's a problem. She's married to another guy, this character Paltiel. And we don't know much about him, but we're pretty sure he liked Michael and that he was okay with being married to her. In fact, I think he really, really, really wanted to be married to her. And so Ishbosheth says, yeah, I'll take care of that. And, you know, he just goes and gets her. And, and, it, and there's this fascinating scene where you have the men of Ishbosheth taking Michael and they're taking her to David and here comes her husband behind her and he's just weeping. Poor guy. And they said, you can need to just go to, you just need to go home. And that's the last we ever hear of him. You know, I picture the poor guy going at home and just sitting there and thinking, boy, I'll never find another one. I'll never find another Michael. And I would, the only thing I would say to that is don't build any views of marriage and the permanence of marriage on that story. <laughs> It'd be a bad place to go to in, in, the, in the scripture to build that. I do not understand, and nor do I pretend to, why, uh, why God allowed some of the, the brokenness in the marriage covenant in the Old Testament like he did. Um, multiple wives, which were clearly not in his original plan, these kinds of stories, which were clearly not in his original plan. Um, but the story is there, and not going to sanitize it. It is what it is. And, um, and it's part of the story of David being restored or given what was originally promised. And I think that, that this story needs to be seen in the context of a restoration of God's promises. And that it needs to be read as, as a part of the bigger story of the promises of God being fulfilled on his servant David. And that when God had given him even Michael as his wife, that this is a season of restoration, if you will, or maybe even not restoration, because it's not as though David even had the crown necessarily, but it's a season of God keeping his promise to David, to his servant David and giving him everything that had, that had been his promised. And so it needs to be seen in that context and as a part of this story of God establishing his promises to David and read in that light. Let's keep going. 
We'll pick it up in verse 17. And then it says, And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then, bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin, and then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. And just very quickly, we, we get a glimpse into what the nation of Israel is thinking right now, because Abner is acknowledging the fact that the elders have been saying for some time, it says that, that they would really like to have David as their king. So what's kept that from happening? It's been Abner. Abner's the one that's been keeping this from happening. He's the one that's kept him from having David as their king because now we realize that the elders of Israel have been asking because Abner acknowledges it, that you have been seeking David as king over you. And he even acknowledges why, because they understand that when David is king, that they'll have deliverance from the hand of their enemies. So we pick it up in verse 20. It says, when Abner, I'm sorry, I am missing, oh, here we go. When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my Lord the king that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. So David and Abner have met. They've agreed to a covenant. There's going to be peace. David is going to be the king over Israel. Things are looking wonderful and things are really looking up. And everything is going to go perfect. Right? Not so fast. Verse 22. Just then, the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he has let him go, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner the son of Ner came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you are doing. And that is as far as we're going this morning. We're going to leave, I'm going to leave you on a cliffhanger. See what's happening? So Abner has had the change of heart. He is acknowledging that this is God's plan all along. And so he meets with David, restores David's wife back to him, meets with David, they establish a covenant, and he turns around to go back to the men and the elders of Israel, and they're going, they're, the wheels are moving. This is going to happen. God's plan is unfolding. And Joab, David's general, steps in and says, are you kidding me? He has not had a change of heart. He's still a snake. A tiger can't change its stripes. Abner's still Abner. And all of this is going to backfire on you, David, and you will see that he has deceived you all along, and this is not part of God's plan. And we're going to pick up on that next week. But I want to talk this morning 
a little bit about the issue of the change of heart. It's a sort of four-word description of what we often just say with one word, and that's repentance. The issue of repentance. The, the word repentance has been often misunderstood and misrepresented in one of two ways. Either repentance is described as feeling really bad about what you've done and verbalizing it and maybe even having some emotion with it. But there's no actions to follow. Or repentance is described as a change of behavior and no acknowledgement is given to what's going on inside the person. Because it's possible at times to change our behavior to even, if you have a lot of willpower, to break addictions, but to not really have had a change of heart. And if you wanted to do a word study on the word repentance, you would find that it actually, when Scripture refers to repentance, it really refers to a change of heart that produces a change of behavior. It is not either or, it's both. And what Abner is modeling here is a change of heart and a biblical idea of what repentance looks like. And it's a word that is almost offensive in American culture. Because if there's a call to repentance, that's an acknowledgement that things are not okay the way they are. And if I walked up to you and said, what I see in your life is a desperate need for repentance, it'd be kind of offensive. It would for sure be confrontational. And it'd be hard not to get a little defensive in that moment and say, what do you mean I need to repent? I think I'm doing pretty good. I mean, yeah, I got a few flaws. Yes, I know there's some stuff that's probably not quite the way it ought to be. But I think repentance is a little strong. I think it's a little strong to say I should repent. And I'm not sure if I'm comfortable with that word. Would you be more comfortable with a change of heart? If someone in sitting down with you said, well, I think you need a change of heart. Well, that's kind of offensive too. Because they're, again, that's built on this assumption that there's something wrong in your heart or in my heart. And it's that element, the acknowledgement that there is a sense of need that keeps us from it in the first place. It's the admission that things are not okay the way they are that keep us from ever experiencing lasting and meaningful change. We're proud. We're self-satisfied. We're self-serving. And we hate admitting that there's anything wrong with me. There's always something wrong with everybody else. But it's not me. And some of us need to 
be back singing that old spiritual song, you know, it's me, it's me, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of change. Not my brother, not my sister, but it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of change. And when Abner comes to a moment of crisis, he's prompted by a crisis. And the crisis in that moment, by the way, is Ishbosheth accusing him of this illicit relationship with this concubine. And it's like all of the things that have happened. You know, last week we were looking at these guys by the pool, right? And there's 12 men on Abner's side, 12 men on Joab's side, and they all stand up and they grab each other by the head to fight each other and they stick each other with the sword. Graphic picture. And they all die. 24 men, dead. And you would think at that moment, Joab would say, or Abner would say, oh, I need, I need to repent. But he doesn't. You remember the story, we looked at it last week, Asahel who's chasing Abner and ends up with the butt of Abner's sword sticking out his back as it went through his stomach. Pretty graphic. And it talks about how the men of Judah were pursuing and they just came to that spot and they saw the body of Asahel and they were like, whoa, 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 whoa. And they, and they, just, and they stood still, it says. But Abner didn't have a change of heart. And you read at the beginning of chapter 3 how there's a long war and the house of David keeps getting stronger and the house of Saul keeps getting weaker. But Abner still doesn't have a change of heart. But then all of a sudden, it's like this moment of crisis. It's like everybody's got a breaking point. Everybody has a point where you step back and you say, I have got a major problem. I've been heading off in the wrong direction all this time. I've been doing it all wrong. And what looks like the worst thing in that moment may actually be the best thing possible. And the reality is that every one of us, if you have come to a moment of trusting Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and making Him King of your life, there was a moment of crisis, or there was a season of crisis. There was a time when you acknowledged and realized that I am a person in need. I am a person that is sinful and broken, and that I desperately need the forgiveness and redemption of God through his son Jesus Christ. There is a time and a season or a moment where the realization hits us that we have to have a change of heart. It's prompted by crisis. And I don't know anybody, I have never heard a story yet of someone who is going along and thinks, my life could not possibly get any better. I must trust Jesus. In general, people tend to, we all tend to, have moments where there's a realization. Now, these may be big crises. They might just be an internal and emotional crisis. But the stories all sound similar in this sense of there was a moment where I realized I had a need. There was a crisis moment. There was a time when I realized I needed Jesus to be my king. There's a moment where Abner realizes he needs David to be the king. And that Ishbosheth, this man of shame, this self-made king, 
will never actually work. And he will never actually experience victory. Listen, if you have been trying with all of your human effort to run your own life and just trying as hard as possible to avoid a complete surrender to Jesus, if you haven't hit it yet, you will at some point hit a moment where there is a crisis and you realize this is not working. This doesn't work. And I'm not, I'm not equipped or qualified even to really run my own life. Why? Well, because we lack wisdom. Like we, don't see the, we don't see what's behind everything. We lack power. We can't make anything happen. We, we lack the ability to see the future. And we lack goodness. And the list could go on and on and on. And so we're ill-equipped to be our own kings because there is lack and gap everywhere. And that realization, that crisis moment should take us to the king who has no lack of wisdom, no lack of power, no lack of goodness, and who can lead us in a moment of surrender. But how many of you know that there are going to be those times when like emotionally you, you're saying, oh, you might be here this morning, you might be like, you know, mentally I'm, I'm tracking with you. Preacher, I get it. Theologically, I am supposed to surrender my life, and I could pray, and I could say, Jesus, I want you to be Lord of my life. I want you to control my life. I get that. Man, I've been hearing this since I was a little kid. And, and yet, I'm not sure that it ever really stuck. Or I know someone who has also said those words and nothing has changed. One of the things, the main thing, that convinced me that Abner actually had a change of heart is that he was proven by his actions. His actions proved that he was sincere in saying, let's go make David king over all of Israel. He didn't just say it he stepped out and started to do it. And he dedicated the next season of his life. Spoiler alert, it was the last season of his life. But he dedicated that part of his life to making happen what he believed God wanted to have happen. He put action to his words. And he stepped out and started to do something. I've shared this before, and I'll share it again. I remember a number of years ago when I was teaching a Bible study class in, at Oakdale Prison, and I just had this question that kept coming back to me over and over. Guys would talk about, they'd say, I, I violated my wife's trust so badly, how do I ever convince her that I have changed? We know this problem, don't we? Trust has been violated. How do you convince somebody that you've changed? How would somebody convince you that they have changed? And I, I started just giving them the same answer every time. Not with words. You do it with actions. And it takes time. You can't make a phone call and say, hey, just want you to know I've had a complete change of heart. I'm a different person. And I'll never treat you the same way that I did. And expect that person to say, fantastic, I believe you. They won't. 
Not unless there are actions that follow that kind of a change of heart. That's why a repentance that is just emotional or just verbal is not really repentance. But neither is just a change of behavior. Because unless the heart has changed, the old behaviors are going to find their way back in. Every time. If the heart has not changed, the old behaviors are coming back. Might look a little different, but they're coming back. And Abner models something that is core to this issue of a change of heart and repentance. And it is this willingness to take bold steps to make it right. To rectify what was wrong. And it is at that point that most of us choke. Some of us sometimes need to make a phone call or meet with somebody and say, I'm sorry, I hurt you. I was wrong. Like, why are those words so hard to come out of our mouth? Why can't we just say, well, I'm sorry, I was wrong? Because it takes humility. It takes admitting that we are wrong. And so, just the words, man, I've had a change of heart, with no change of action, are going to ring really hollow. And it should not be a surprise if you find that people cannot trust you if there is a repeated pattern of words without actions. You're like, whoa, I don't like that. Yeah, neither do I. <laughs> I have all my life felt like I could talk my way in and out of things. Sometimes successfully and sometimes unsuccessfully, but usually arrogant enough to think I can try. And, and one of the things that I remember in my marriage, my wife's in the kids' church, so I can talk about her. <laughs> She's taking care of kids this morning. I remember my wife saying, to me one day, she says, just because you're better with words doesn't mean you're right. It's like, oh, she's so wise. <laughs> and, and behind that was also, just because you say something doesn't make it so. I want to see it. I want to see it. Like, it does no good for me to say, you know what? I've really had a change of heart about the whole dirty dishes thing and just setting them on the counter and they magically disappear. I've had a change of heart. I'm going to actually physically put them in the dishwasher. And then once the dishwasher gets full, I'll actually start it. Like this is major sacrifice on my half, on my part. <laughs> you know, we don't even have to wash dishes by hand anymore. But it does no good if she comes home and the counter is still full of dirty dishes. Right? That's really a simple stuff. But this is, this is where we live. It's like I got the best of intentions, but no follow through. 
number of years ago, I had the opportunity to take some life coaching. And um, I actually don't recommend it if you're, if you're really in a, in a fragile place emotionally because it's, it was good I wasn't in a fragile place emotionally, emotionally because it is very effective pressure. Um, but, but my life coach would, he would ask questions like, what would it look like if you actually did what you say you're going to do? And he would get me to, to start to describe this picture. What would it actually look like? And then he'd say, now what's the first step to get there? I don't know. Because I had this bad habit of, of saying, well, I'm going to be doing more of fill in the blank. I'm going to read more next year. Or I'm going to start letting other people talk more and I'm going to listen more. Or whatever. And you'd say, well, what's the first step? Well, you know, so I, I don't know. And he'd sit there and he'd just wait, which is annoying. And, and he wouldn't let me off the hook. I'm like, okay, here's the first step. Here's what I need to do. I'd say, okay, when are you going to do it? And my answer the first couple times is, oh, I, um, once things slow down a little bit, he says, you know that an answer that's not specific will never be filled out, will never be carried out, right? Okay. He says, what day are you going to do it? I'm like, okay, two weeks. Okay, so today's Wednesday. In two weeks on Wednesday, by Wednesday, you'll have done it. You'll have taken that first step. Like, yeah. Okay. Do you want me to hold you accountable? Hated that question. <laughs> I was like, well, of course the right answer is yes. Hold me accountable. He said, okay. He said, if you have not contacted me in two weeks, to let me know that you took that first step. Then he said, I'll contact you. Okay. That's actually really effective. And I think sometimes all of us need some life coaching. In fact, I just did some of it for you this morning, and I'm not, char- not going to charge you a dime for it. So you are welcome. Abner's repentance and change of heart was proven by his actions, and so is ours. Thirdly, and this, I think, is really the core of what was driving Abner, and I think it's the core of what drives us. Abner, at least three times in this text, acknowledges that God has promised David the throne. That God is behind this all along. And Abner's change of heart is actually based on the promises of God. The very first thing he says to Ishbosheth in verse 9, he says, God do so to Abner more also if I do not accomplish for David. This is, listen to this. What the Lord has sworn to him. What's he saying? He's saying this has been God's plan all along. This is the promise of God. That David would be king over all of Israel. And again, when he goes to the elders, when he contacts David, and then again when he goes to the elders, he acknowledges that this is the promise of God, that God has promised this. That David's going to be the king of Israel. And that this is what really is the primary reason for a change of heart in the first place, is that this is God's doing, that this is God's plan, that this is God's promise. And his change of heart is actually based 
on God and his promises, not based on his own ideas and emotions. And that was unusual for Abner, and that's why I think it was, it was real. Because up to this point, everything we read about Abner is he's doing what just makes sense to him and what seems good to him. And for the first time in Abner's life, he's saying, what does God want? What's God's plan? Let's go that route. And that's what makes me think this is real change of heart for Abner. Because that's the element of authenticity that we look for in genuine repentance and a genuine change of heart. Is that up to that point, we may have been asking, what do I want? How am I feeling? What, what do I think should happen? And we're basing all of those questions on me as the king. And maybe for the first time we stop and we say, what does God actually want? What's his intentions? What would honor his name? What has he promised? And I'm going to make my decisions from here on out based on that instead of what I have been feeling. And that is the core issue in genuine biblical repentance is what does God want of my life? What has he promised? And even to take the step of faith in saying not only what has he promised, but what has he promised to do with me? What has he promised to do in my heart? There's this fascinating prophecy in the book of Ezekiel, and it's referred to in Hebrews. And in Ezekiel, he prophesies of a day when God will begin to restore all of the promises to Israel, and we know that he restored, that he promises, or he fulfills all those promises through Jesus Christ. But Ezekiel said, this is the word of the Lord, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. What an incredible promise that you and I as a recipients of grace are not in a position where we have to try harder with our human effort, but that God says, I will literally put a new heart in you. Now that's a change of heart. That's actually the real change of heart. And he says, and he describes how he will do it. He says, I'll do it by my spirit. He says, I'll put my spirit within you. Now, we know the rest of the story. We know that Christ came and that he came as a little baby, he lived as a man, and that he died as a man and, for, and he forgives us of our sins, that he paid the penalty for your sins and for my sins, and that he was placed in a tomb, but he didn't stay in the tomb, that he rose up out of the tomb, and that he walked and he talked with his disciples. We know that he defeated death. We know all that. We know that Pentecost came a few days later and that the coming of the Holy Spirit was represented by the tongues of fire over the people's heads and that the church was never the same after that the followers of Jesus were filled with a fire within them that changed them drastically you find the disciples of Jesus in Acts chapter 1 where they're saying Jesus will you restore your kingdom on earth that's Acts 1 you find them in Acts chapter 2 they're hiding in a room because they're afraid and then the Holy Spirit comes. 
and you talk about a change of heart, everything changed in that moment for them. Because when the Holy Spirit was in them, they walked out of that room, men who just a few hours before were hiding there in fear and scared of the rulers, they walk right out to their rulers and they're like, you crucified Jesus, you need to repent. And there is a boldness and a fire in their belly that they had never experienced before. Why? They had had a change of heart. This is a change of heart that God had promised through his prophet Ezekiel. This is the change of heart, he says, and I will put my spirit within you, a new heart. Take the heart that is hard and stony out and give you a tender heart, a soft heart, one that the spirit of God can direct and lead. And sometimes I wish that he had just done it physically. But there's a spiritual reality where he's literally saying that if you will come to Christ and if you will trust him, that he can give you and I a change of heart, like he can literally give us a new heart. And he does so by his spirit. One of the things that I noticed is that the more that the spirit of God is in control of my life, the softer I am to the things of God and to the, um, the pain of the people around me. I've told people that the longer I walk with God and the more the Holy Spirit controls my life, I cry easier and I laugh easier. There's a freedom to just be real. To have a tender heart, a soft heart that can hear the voice of God, that can hear the conviction of the Holy Spirit, that can experience the joy of knowing that we are restored, the hope of a glorious future, and to be alive at a heart level, a heart that is alive, one that is in tune to the presence and the power of God at work in our lives, giving us power over sin. Do you have a new heart? Would people around you be able to see your new heart at work? Can they see that that man or woman has a heart that is described in Ezekiel where he says, I will give them a new heart. I'll put my spirit within them. And can they see the spirit of God at work in a change of heart? That's really the question. Do you, have you experienced a change of heart? Like, well, man, I, I prayed one time. I prayed one time and I said, Jesus, I accept you as my Lord and Savior and I ask you to forgive me. My... That's fantastic. You know what Jesus said to Nicodemus? When Nicodemus said, what must I do to be saved? Jesus didn't say, well, repeat, after, repeat these words after me. Jesus said, well, you must be born again. He just said, you've got to be born again. There needs to be a birth and he went on to describe it. Nicodemus is like, are you saying, he's like, explain this to me. He's like, you're using physical terms, but I think you're describing something else. And he was right. Jesus was using physical terms to describe a spiritual reality. He's saying, you must be born of the Spirit. And the Spirit must birth something in you. 
Does it mean that you were radically incapable of sinning from that point on? No, it actually doesn't. Scripture doesn't, doesn't necessarily make that promise. But what it does mean is that we live with a different motivation and we have the power to grow and to become mature and to say no to sin and we begin to see change happen in our lives. Oh, sometimes it happens too slowly, but at least it's happening. Sometimes it happens fast, but you begin to see how God is changing you from the inside out. And if you can't track any change in your life, if you can't see God's hand changing you from the inside out, then you have to ask this really uncomfortable but necessary question. You really have the Spirit of God. Has, you, has He really given you a new heart? Because where He is, there will be change. There will be transformation. Where there is a new heart and a change of heart, there will be change. And there will be an inner transformation that comes out. And so, that's the question of the moment. I think Abner had a change of heart. Because he went from operating and making decisions based on his own wisdom to asking, what does God want? In the sermon in a sentence, when a heart is changed by God, the right king will be on the throne. Isn't that the story of Abner? He's like, change your heart, put the right king on the throne. It's time to get Ishbosheth off the throne. It's time to remove him. It's time for David, the rightful king. Listen, some of us, some of us need to experience that in a very personal way where we're asking God for the change of heart. Lord, would you change me from the inside out? Fill me with your spirit. What did Jesus say in Luke? In the Gospel of Luke, he says, he said, if you're good fathers, you know to give your children good gifts. He says, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Isn't that the most beautiful promise? How much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Have you ever asked God for, the Holy, for his Spirit? Have you ever asked God to be full of his Spirit? Say, Lord, just fill me with your Spirit. I mean, read the book of Acts for crying out loud. We don't look enough like that. I mean, these people, they didn't care about their personal safety. They didn't care if people beat them or if they criticized them. They cared about one thing, and that was the, the gospel of Jesus Christ going into another town, another heart, another place. They cared about the message. They cared about the people. They cared for each other. Why? Because they were full of the Spirit. It says it over and over in Acts. And they were filled with the Spirit. And then it would describe what they did next. And it says, and then they were filled with the, then they'd pray together. They'd go to a prayer meeting. And then it says, and then they were filled with the Spirit. You just keep seeing this term. Same people, by the way. Because I read the book of Acts, I start to think, this is not just a one-time event. This is a lifestyle of being full of God's Spirit and being filled with God's Spirit. When's the last time you asked, Lord, empty me of me and fill me with you? Like, well, I'd be cool with the filling, but I don't want to be empty of me. 
I kind of like me. That's why you're not full. That's why we're not full. We're too full of ourselves. We got the wrong king on the throne. That's why the change of heart doesn't happen. Some deeper study questions. If you want to go a little further with that, Amber, you guys are going to need to go ahead and come on up. I need to bring this to a close. Would you have the courage this morning? This is what I want to close with: is a question. Would you have the courage to, even in the next few moments, just to say, "Lord, I I know there's areas in my life that do need to change, and I need a change of heart in these areas, and I invite you to change." my heart in this area. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior and you've never even begun the process. I don't think it's a one-time event. I think it's a very, very, I mean, I've had heart changes many, many times. Some of them big, some of them small, but it's just an ongoing process of sanctification that God is continuing to work on me. And I think that's true for all of us, isn't it? And wouldn't you... Would you have the courage this morning to say, Lord, search my heart. Any areas that need to change, just give me a new heart. I want your Holy Spirit to control my life. Can I pray for you? Lord, thank you again for this story of, of Abner and the change of heart and, and um, the repentance that he showed. And Lord, I pray for each person here, myself included. Lord, give us sensitive hearts um, that can hear your Spirit speaking. Lord, um, we rest on the truth, the simple truth of the gospel this morning that you have forgiven us and that you offer to change us from the inside out, to change our hearts and uh, to take a heart of stone and uh, to give us a tender heart. Lord, there may be somebody here this morning who is just realizing in this moment that their heart maybe has become very hard in an area, uh, maybe toward a person or a relationship and, uh, and just needing your spirit to, to soften that area. The Spirit of the living God, fill each one of us. Um, empty us of ourselves and fill us with you and change our hearts. All for the glory of your name. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.